Hello, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, just published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. What makes them tick? In this episode, I talk with Sue Unvarsky, who's the vice president in charge of U.S. customer service for Prudential Financial. We talked about the importance of due diligence and strong leadership. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Sue Unvarsky. Sue oversees back office operations for Prudential's entire U.S. customer base. Her team consists of more than 700 associates, located both domestically and internationally. And she's responsible with her team for the administration of millions of life insurance, retirement and annuity solutions for customers. Sue's been with Prudential for more than 30 years and she's held a variety of executive positions over her career, including Chief Operating Officer of Prudential's retirement business. I've had the honor and privilege of knowing Sue and working with her as a client. I consider her a true friend, and she's exactly the kind of person I am trying to introduce the world to in this podcast. Sue Unvarsky, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce. Wow, what an introduction. Appreciate that. So uh, let, let's cut right to it. Um, you are the kind of person who, you, you have a reputation that you've built uh, over the last three decades at this monumental organization. How do you understand your role in relation to the mission and your colleagues? How, how is it you've built this reputation as a person of integrity and influence? Well, that's a that's a great question, Bruce, and um, I think it's it's threefold, right? Uh, first of all, it starts with core values. It starts with who we are as individuals, and uh, what it is that um, we learned as children, and that was ingrained upon us as we as we uh, grew into adulthood. And ultimately, what are the core values that we all hold and we seek to achieve? One of the many core values that were ingrained in me was making sure that I do the right things for the right reasons uh, and that I am uh, utilizing the power of the people around me um, to help achieve the results that I'm looking to achieve. So I would say first and foremost, it's those two elements of core values uh, that form my leadership style. I would say the second thing is and this is something I learned uh, early as a child and then figured out how to harness it over my career is uh, I am not nearly as good standing on my own as I am casting a much wider net and getting input from other people. And in particular, harnessing the power of those other people that are very different than me. Uh, having them test my thought process, having them bring ideas to the table that otherwise wouldn't have been brought to the table and figuring out how to uh, work with a large and diverse group of people towards a better end. Uh, and then thirdly, it's about having a purpose, right? I work for a company that has a much higher purpose and that is to help people find financial peace of mind. That's very important to me. 
I couldn't just work for a company whose single solitary goal is to make money um, or uh, to build an empire and get bigger. There has to be a purpose. And one of the things that I do very, very frequently when I'm working on a project or initiative or simply talking with folks that I work with that have a day-to-day deliverable is remind them of what we're trying to do for our customers. I believe that people uh, are more loyal, are more dedicated and more passionate about what they do when there's a higher purpose in place. I would guess that working for a a financial juggernaut like Prudential (laughs) You know, sometimes people don't realize that that can be mission-driven work also. You're absolutely right. It's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day of of what you're doing um, and not necessarily realize that there is someone at the other end of the equation that our whole purpose is serving. And uh, it, it could be at very, very critical moments in their life, and it often is. It could be, I need to save for the future. Um, I need to make sure that my retirement is as secure as it could be. It could be I'm looking to care for a child in the event that my life should end sooner than I would hope it would. Um, It could be any one of those things um, that are triggered at different life journeys. And ultimately, that's why we're here and what we're looking to do. Yeah, and and I know that a huge part of your purpose, uh, I know this from the first time I met you, um, is taking care of your people. One of the things, um, I mean, there are many things that set you apart, uh, and I could go on and on, uh, but um, one of the things that I'll never forget is, you know, I mean, I've been doing what I do for a long time. And, you know, I sent books and materials and testimonials. And I believe I even knew people at Prudential um, when you reached out to me and you were like, yeah, but if I'm going to take an hour of my manager's time and expose them to somebody, I want to meet you in person first. And I just thought that was so interesting and unusual. And of course, it required a huge time commitment for you uh, to, to go, you know, what if you didn't like me? You would have had to go meet someone else. And to me, that stood out because I knew what you were doing was trying to make sure you didn't waste a couple hours of time of 80 managers. Yeah, Bruce, it's, uh, you know, time is our most valuable resource. I don't need to tell you that or anyone listening to this podcast But one thing uh, that happened earlier in my career is I found I was getting invited to a lot of conferences and offsites um, or even uh, day long meetings where people were bringing in speakers, either internal or external speakers, and just saying, you know, do what you do um, and not really level setting around the mission or the purpose or the objective of that particular offsite or meeting. Um, And I would walk away um, seeing someone who in the right environment probably would have been a very engaging uh, and uh, productive speaker. But because we hadn't done the work to level set, to prepare, and to plan prior to that engagement, it wasn't a good use of, of time. And as such, you didn't get out of it what you initially expected. So I learned that the hard way, and uh, when I'm the one authoring or leading these offsites, 
um, it's one of the most important things I can do. I want to make sure that the topic is relevant. I want to make sure that the speaker understands the current environment and more importantly, the outcome I'm looking to get. Um, and that outcome is usually inspire the audience that you're talking to, to do things differently and to do things better. And that's what it was all about. It was about prepping you, prepping us, and making sure that the engagement was successful. Yeah, and I, of course I realized that, and you know, first and foremost, I was hoping to pass the audition, and uh, and of course I wanted to be sufficiently prepared to do a good job with the group. But what 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 I found striking about it was your commitment to due diligence and uh, just the rigor of that decision. And uh, I think I even asked you, well, you know, how can you devote this much time and energy to that kind of due diligence? And it was, um, it was a great illustration of playing the long game one moment at a time because, you know, I think you could see the cost of not optimizing that time where you have 80 people that you brought. You could see the value of it. Yeah, and it was, it was about not wasting time. But, Bruce, it was also about... Um, inspiring a, a broad group of individuals to raise the bar, to do what I needed them to do, and really, you know, ignite a fire in their belly so that they can um, raise the bar even further than I could help them to raise the bar myself. It was, it was about sending them back um, having them think differently, do things differently, and, and uh, influence them to take us in a direction that, that I alone or my direct reporting team alone couldn't possibly create without their help. So by having you there, having you understand who we were and what we were trying to do, it made you all the more influential in what you were doing. And then I sent them back and they raised the bar several layers higher than what I even imagined we would be able to do. Yeah, I mean, it's great. And uh, I was grateful for the added due diligence. But to me also, I could see, you know, and when I talked with your people, it was clear that uh, this was not a, a unique experience, that, uh, that that's how you operate. Uh, and the due diligence and rigor in making choices, especially choices that are going to affect other people, uh, it's just such a respectful way to think about your role and to, to, to behave in your role. It's, a, it's such a respectful way to conduct yourself and so thorough. And, 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 and I know that you, in leading such a large complex organization, over and over and over again, you have to make choices about priorities. So I use this as just one simple object lesson, but how do you help people be prepared to make those decisions on a day-to-day -day basis when there's too much to do and not enough time? That's a great question. Um, so prioritizing in a leadership role in any job, let alone a financial services job, is, is incredibly difficult. And um, it's about learning to say no um, and being able to influence others that, um, that may have had a vested interest in what you were saying no to, that that was the right decision at the time. So uh, we talk about priorities all the time, as you might imagine. Uh, we, we talk about them in many different forums, Bruce. We talk about them in, in team huddles and 
uh, broader staff meetings. I talk to them in one-on-one -on -one meetings with my group. And, um, and I talk about it with my senior leadership team as well. And I think the most important thing around prioritization, and, and in some ways this was driven out of necessity recently because of the pandemic and the changes that that placed on all of us, is knowing when to say no and knowing how to explain why that particular project or that particular item um, is either going to be paused for now or canceled totally. Those are the most difficult prioritization decisions, but they have to be done. And where I see teams struggling more with prioritization, in most cases, and the first question I usually ask is, what did you say no to? Let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, it, it seems to me in, in our research, and I think you're a good example of this, that the most valuable thing you can have if you want people to accept your no's is a track record of making good decisions um, and also uh, for people to feel like a like a, there's a process and there's 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 logic and that you're not just saying no uh, but that there's good reasons for it yeah absolutely and uh, there's a couple of um, there's a couple of things that are coming to mind as to uh, you know examples that I can use when we say no um, but it's about understanding what's going to move the needle the furthest and really focusing on those types of things as opposed to focusing on things that might seem like a good idea in and of itself um, as opposed to um, you know running down something at any given time that might be a, a better focus. Yeah, I mean, look, the proof of a no uh, is, is hard to... Uh, demonstrate because if you say no, the thing doesn't happen. Um, and, uh, and really, in ultimately, the value of a, of a good no is that it makes room for a better yes. Exactly. And actually, one example that I can use to, uh, to recognize that is as human beings, uh, we sometimes think saying no or saying stop means failure. And uh, that is usually not the case. And uh, we've been uh, coaching uh, our leaders about this. And quite honestly, it's been a learning process for me myself as well, is look, if things aren't panning out the way you thought they would, if the, if the uh, customer experience isn't going to get much better, or if the cost reduction isn't going to be the opportunity that you thought it would, don't keep beating a dead horse trying to find more because you're wasting time and energy on something that's probably not gonna pan out the way you thought it would. It's better to set, stop, uh, admit that it's not gonna pan out the way you thought it would and view that failure per se as a learning opportunity and an opportunity to say, okay, I'm not gonna waste any more energy on this. I'm gonna now change my focus and focus on something that might have a better outcome and better results. And that's been a big culture change for us uh, as an organization uh, and for our our folks, because we've we again feel like stopping or saying no means failure, and that's uh, that's really a good thing. 
Yeah, I mean, good money after bad, cut your losses. There's a lot of uh, um, uh, ways to look at that. The Warren Bennis research, it turns out that um, the most effective leaders, you know, they have extraordinary energy as something you might expect. But the thing that I didn't expect uh, in, in that old research is uh, that the, the most effective leaders don't always make more of the right decisions, but they 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 recognize the wrong decision more quickly and stop it and turn around, you know? Exactly. Fail fast. So tell me, um, when you think about, uh, I mean, you've been uh, around for a while. and what, what is it that, that makes you a person others don't want to disappoint? Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. And it's funny that you said that um, because I, I received some feedback lately that um, that one of the driving factors uh, when someone is working on something for me is that that individual is terrified of disappointing me or or letting me down. And um, I don't know that I'm 100% certain as to what drives that feeling. Um, maybe it's because uh, I'm constantly uh, encouraging, I'm constantly suggesting or uh, trying to help and get engaged. And uh, I'm trying to inspire people to be their best. But I've had to adjust my style because of that. Um, Sometimes it's not a good thing that the only thing that's driving someone is that they don't want to let their leader down. And uh, what I've learned is that I need to interject more elements into the conversation of if you disagree, push back. If you're not seeing the same benefits that I am, please push back. Let's talk about it. And I've been a lot more articulate um, about helping to um, disconnect that emotion uh, when it's not necessarily good. Um, But Focusing on, um, you know, when I myself don't want to let a leader down, um, it's, it's not necessarily um, a bad thing, and it drives me harder, and it, it drives me to be more passionate about what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, so I would separate authority and influence here, and you happen to be a person with a lot of institutional authority because... Um, you're the boss, right? You know, I think when somebody um, feels like their track record of success might be on the line, their rewards might be on the line, you know, that's one category. But, but I think it, it just as a person, you have a way of making it clear that you have very high standards and very high expectations. And I think you also have a way of setting an aspiration for an individual. I know I've had that experience. I mean, I've worked for you as a a seminar leader. So I've had that experience personally of, you know, and I know you're going to pay me and, you know, I know I'll do okay, but I, I, I want you to be thrilled. Right. And, and that's not because of authority. That's because of something about how you conduct yourself and I think that's a really positive thing. I think there's something really, uh, it's intangible. Yep. It's, uh, so, so you're right. Uh, authority and influence are, are two very different things. And uh, what I'll put in the quick authority bucket is um, the hierarchical need uh, that's often uh, instilled in an organization and knowing that, um, that 
someone like me is determining uh, your raise or your bonus on, on a regular basis. I rarely, if ever, use that. The only time I'll go to authority, Bruce, is uh, when, it's, when it's mission critical, right? When we're going to jail if something goes wrong <laughs> or when somebody ethically or morally is doing the wrong thing. That's when authority will come into play for me. Um, 99% of the time, it's about influencing. And I always start with finding common ground, uh, with finding um, some area in which you and I or the other person and I can relate. And uh, then I take that and I turn it into common goals and deliverables. And then everything else flows from there as to how are we going to achieve those goals and deliverables in the right way. And then I, then I typically not only talk about the what of what I'd like to do, but I want to talk about why and the how as well. How will people feel after you're done speaking, for example? How do I want people to think after the discussion? And why do we want them thinking that way? So, so a focus on the why and the how is critically important to uh, influencing the way that I want to, and then ultimately getting people feeling a certain way when they walk away. Where does reputation fit? You know, um, I have this sense that, um, I mean, I know you have this reputation. I know a lot of people do, but it takes a long time to build a reputation. Yeah, reputation is critically important. As you know, it can work for you or it can work against you. But there are multiple times that, um, that you don't bring that with you and uh, that you're working with people that you don't know. And, and for me, it's about building trust with people as quickly as you possibly can, right? Relationship management is more important than it's ever been, regardless of what you're doing. And to me, managing relationships and being able to influence without authority uh, is absolutely about building trust first and foremost. So, um, you know, I'll give you, I've probably got, you know, Sue's top 10 relative to ways that you can build trust. And um, I'll give you two examples. One of them would be the types of things that you expect, right? It's don't lie, uh, don't have a hidden agenda, right? Don't be dishonest in any way, shape or form, because if it's not obvious on the outset, people will figure it out sooner rather than later. So that's the type of thing you would probably expect. Maybe one of the things you wouldn't expect that are on my uh, list of how do I build trust is I will often try to help someone achieve their outcomes or their goals, whatever they might be, right? A business outcome or a a personal development outcome um, when there's absolutely no benefit to me in helping. So one great way to build trust with people is to help them even though it doesn't do anything for you or worse yet, even if it's an inconvenience to you and there is no benefit to you. Um, That's one that I rely on a lot when I need to build trust and people know that I'm going to help you for the sake of helping you, um, not because I'm going to get some kind of credit or some kind of benefit in the outcome. But building trust is critically important to being able to influence without authority. 
I often talk about, you know, you want to be known as somebody who delivers. You want to be known as somebody who doesn't overpromise. You want to be known as somebody who stops and tunes in and respects other people's needs. You want to be someone who clearly goes through a rigorous process of deciding how to address somebody's needs. Um, and then if you do make a promise, you deliver. And over time, you develop this reputation as somebody who conducts themselves in a certain way, right? You're known. And so I'm glad you tuned into, yeah, what do you do if you're starting from scratch? You know, especially for someone who's used to having that reputation, like, you know, so somebody says, well, why should I believe you? And you're like, well, don't you know? I mean, this is who I am. This is, uh, everyone knows. You can count on me, you know, <laughs> but you show up, you show up and you're, and, and how do you demonstrate that? So the first way is you, you, you tell the truth, right? And uh, you make sure, uh, you know, I have this great little example of, you know, you don't say, hey, do you have a minute if it's going to be three minutes? Because there's just a slight off about that, you know, um, but, but, but what are some other ways to show your cards or show your intent, show your, your integrity um, in ways that can accelerate the relationship build or the, the relate? Yeah, it's re really relationship building. Yeah, it's about being transparent about the intent or the purpose, Bruce, right? So, um, you know, just as an example, there are times when um, I see other companies um, or peers within the industry selling a cost reduction initiative as a customer experience improvement initiative. Um, and the reality is there's no element of the customer experience that's going to get better they were trying to disguise it so that they can cut their costs. Um, you got to call a spade a spade. And um, you've got to, if, if, if we're mailing too much paper, as an example, um, and it's 2020, we shouldn't be mailing paper um, for most things. We should be uh, digitizing what we can, saving the forest, saving the trees, uh, dealing with um, challenges with fraudulent behavior. Uh, in a way that's that's the right thing to do. And uh, I, I just call it what it is and say, either this is a cost reduction initiative and we're gonna find ways to make it better for our customers or not. So, um, you know, it's about being honest and it's about doing things uh, without hidden agendas and being very transparent along the entire way. What do you do when you encounter in the real world, you know, somebody's trying to get you to do what they want you to do uh, and there are different ways people do that. They'll, you know, they might try to imply that there's a benefit to you personally if you do what they want, or they might try to imply that their cooperation later will be contingent, uh, or they might just squeaky wheel you and badger you. Uh, uh, although you seem immune to that, I could say, <laughs> but you know, what, how do you, how do you operate there? How, what, what yeah. do you do? I wish I was immune to the squeaky wheel. I, I don't know that I am, but um, one of, uh, one of the things uh, that I do, Bruce, when, uh, when there is somewhat of a, a hidden agenda or, a suggestion that there's a, a, a benefit to me personally otherwise is I call out the conflict. Um, so if I sniff it out immediately, um, I tend to be pretty direct around 
can you help me to understand why you're positioning it this way? And it's pretty clear to me that um, this is really the outcome that you're looking to achieve. So, so if you really need me to do that, let's have an honest conversation about why, as opposed to telling me on what you think I want to hear. Um, so, you know, a lot of people avoid conflict. Uh, I happen to uh, call it out immediately and seek to resolve it. And that's my immediate reaction to um, how you have to get back to that transparency um, in the reason why somebody might be trying to influence you one way or another. Yeah, and ultimately, I think conducting yourself in that way, um, it feels better to most people. I, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it, 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 it makes people, it gives people more confidence, I think. Yeah, it, it should. And it should be refreshing because I believe myself that spending a lot of energy in not just being direct and honest and straightforward is, is just, it's exhausting. You know, let's just have an honest conversation. Hopefully we can get to a place uh, that, that works for both of us. But I'm also a fan of this may not work for both of us. Um, and uh, I think as leaders, we need to acknowledge that things aren't always going to go our way. And once we vet it out and we talk through it, we've got to lock and load, support it, and move forward, even though it may not have been something we initially agreed with. But if the conflict is creating uh, more stress on myself or my team, but it's for the right reasons then I need to lock and load and do what needs to be done so that we can achieve the broader good. Um, so let me ask, how, how did you get to be you? Uh, did you, um, where did you find this true North? Who were your, um, who were your role models? Great question. Uh, and I'm going to take you to a place that you might not, um, expect, but, um, I uh, was born and raised into a blue collar family. My dad was a self-employed carpenter. My mom was a stay at home mom and they had your traditional American 1950s kind of uh, marriage where, you know, there was a role for the, for the father and a husband and there was a role for the mother and the wife. And uh, when uh, my fourth sibling was born, my mom had to go back to work. I mean, we were literally living uh, below the poverty line and things were getting very, very difficult financially. So my mom uh, went back to work uh, to carry benefits and to create a second income. That was when I was 11 years old, Bruce. And um, I was coming home from school and my mom was doing the handoff for me. And uh, I was responsible for not only what a typical 11 year old would be responsible for getting my own homework done and all the other stuff that it's an 11 year old usually does after school. But I had to get my four younger siblings through schoolwork, through dinner, through uh, bath time and to bed on time. And um, I learned how to influence the right way, um, the hard way. So the first Six months to nine months did not go well. I had a checklist and I was commanding control and barking orders. And uh, my goal was to uh, check that list off and tell my mother I did everything she needed me to do. What I realized quickly is that command and control in most situations does not work. 
and that I had to help my siblings to understand that there was a why behind why they had to eat dinner. They needed good nutrition. There was a why behind finishing homework. There was a why behind taking a bath before you went to bed. And ultimately, that's where I learned my influencing skills. Um, And ultimately, that's how I ended up becoming uh, the person, the leader that I am. It's about helping people to understand why we do what we do and why we're better when we do it together and we listen to each other. So it's the influence of good reasons and reasonable engagement. I would say so. And then you uh, have sort of worked your way up the ranks at Prudential. Uh, did you have early uh, role models in the in the workplace who uh, either either positive or negative or both? I did. I mean, there's um, there's lots of people internally at Prudential, uh, uh, externally in the community, and uh, you know, I've also got my celebrity uh, type of role models as well. Um, so there were a few. I respect leaders who um, who get results the right way. So I've uh, I've learned from certain uh, attributes of what those leaders do. No one's perfect. We're all human. Um, I've learned uh, what not to do from certain leaders. Um, So I don't know that I would put them in a role model category, but learning what not to do was just as important as uh, modeling behaviors that I respect it. I also uh, am heavily invested in um, my community. I do boardsmanship um, and I, I try to better my local community and the world in which we live in. And I would, I would throw out there someone like Princess Diana as a early role model, as someone who really uh, harnessed her role and her public profile and put it to good use in terms of sponsoring causes that needed to be sponsored to help make our world a better place. You know, uh, Greg Langell, who I interviewed uh, a while back, who, um, was uh, the deputy commanding general of JSOC. He had this great uh, line that uh, he, he says he used to tell young airmen who would say to him, how, General, how do I get to be the best? And he'd say, well, who do you think is the best? And they'd all know. Well, that, you know, that person. So he said, well, be like that person. Mm-hmm. But, but he said, um, but, but his, his thing now that he says to people is, practice being the person you want to be. And that just gives me goosebumps. It's like, you know, this imagine yourself better and try to be like that. What, what immediately comes to mind, Bruce, is, uh, and, and um, my team and my colleagues around me are, are used to hearing me say this, is um, I always want to be slightly uncomfortable. Um, I always tell my team that I want, my goal is to make them slightly uncomfortable because if we're comfortable, we're not pushing ourselves harder. We're not pushing to make things better. We're not pushing to be our best. Um, So every single day that I wake up, I'm looking for that thing that's going to make me slightly uncomfortable, not horribly uncomfortable, but slightly uncomfortable every day so that we can get better. We can do things differently. We can develop um, more fully. Um, and, and that's the goal that I seek to achieve. And I ask folks to 
to make themselves uncomfortable. It's not just about uh, your leaders um, or others around you applying more pressure. It's about you applying more pressure to yourself to do things better um, and not get comfortable in the ways that you've you've learned. And you know, we've we've had this conversation multiple times. Is uh, what I recognize fully that what what got me here isn't what's going to help to make me better in the future. I've got to do things very differently. Yes. So when you say uh, be uncomfortable, you mean don't stay in your comfort zone. Yes. And is that like stay hungry or is it acknowledge what could get better? It's both. It's um, stay hungry for more, uh, whatever that more may be, right? And it's about acknowledging the things that, that you don't do that well, um, that you don't do well at all, or that you know is possibly a weak spot for you, and not running away from it, but finding ways to do it better, right? So the easiest example I'll give, I hear all the time when I ask people, so we'll go back to uh, my leadership offsite. Um, what you noticed when we worked together the last time is that I put certain people on stage for a reason. And there's usually the privileged few from my team who had proven results, whether they had to do with business outcomes or whether they had to do with leadership behaviors. And they get to be on the stage talking about what they did, what they learned, and what outcomes they achieved. Every single time I do that, Bruce, I've got at least a half a dozen folks that approach me that say, I want to be the person on the stage next year. Um, so that definitely helps to influence uh, the different behaviors and, and the different outcomes and ultimately get at that point um, that discomfort uh, that we're looking to fill the gap or make better. What would be your advice to somebody who looks at you and says, gee, how, how do I get to be like you? What, you know, I'm starting out uh, or I'm at some mid-level of my career and I look at you and I, you know, how do I get to be like you? So uh, it, it, it's funny, Bruce, cause uh, I do get that question quite often and uh, it's very humbling to me. Um, and ultimately the underlying question is how do I get to be as successful as you? And I think people uh, tie that success to the uh, you know, the level that I've achieved in corporate America uh, and the authority that I have over, you know, uh, processes, work, people. I define my success as I am happy. I'm happy with my personal decisions and my personal uh, situation. I am very happy uh, with uh, where I am from a professional perspective. And uh, when I wasn't happy, I chose a different path. I chose, um, I, I, I took accountability and ownership of what was happening. I did not blame it on someone else. And I looked in the mirror and said, what do I need to change about me um, to get where I am? And I think that the ultimate advice that I can give to anyone who's really looking to say, how do I get in a more senior role with more authority and influence is be self-aware, be willing to ask people for feedback, be willing to expose the gaps that you don't know that you have, and be willing to surround yourself with people who have the courage to give you criticism. 
and then work on that and make yourself better and everything else will fall into place. So self-awareness and openness to feedback. Um, and I, I think you're right that a lot of people who ask you that question, especially in a professional environment like Prudential, uh, what they mean is, you know, how do I get anywhere near the monumental success you have? But, you know, for me, one of the things I really um, respect about you is that you somehow have managed to do that in a giant financial services organization while holding on to your kind of true north values. And while at least, you know, my perspective, you seem to always have this um, be known as somebody who lifts other people up, who invests in other people, who takes an interest in, in, um, in giving, not just giving other people opportunities, but helping them get better. And, um, you know, no matter how far up the chain of command you get, that seems to still be a big part of who you are. It is, Bruce. Uh, I, I, I want to be known as someone who inspired others to be better, to do better. And, and at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. I, um, I uh, really want to, my legacy needs to be that I made others focus on their strengths, try to close their gaps, and ultimately contribute in a way uh, that was meaningful and uh, that, that, you know, helped to achieve whatever goal it was that they're, they're looking to achieve. Uh, one, I, I was given a gift a couple of years ago. It was a quote that was framed. And I think, I think this quote um, is a good way to describe what I want my legacy to be. But um, the quote itself that was framed, and when I opened it up, it just absolutely uh, caused me to say, that's it. That's what I look to do every day is it says, if you hang out with me for too long, I'll brainwash you into believing in yourself and knowing that you can achieve anything. That's what I want my legacy to be. Um, and that's how it plays out for me every single day and every decision I make. I love it. Can you say it one more time? Sure. If you hang out with me for too long, I'll brainwash you into believing in yourself and knowing you can achieve anything. Sue Invarsky, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. It was great to see you again. Stay safe and take care. In our next episode, I talked with Kara Golden and Theo Golden, wife and husband, team CEO and COO of Hint Water. We talked about the Hint journey, mission-driven work, and Kara's new book, Undaunted. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Any little bit helps to drive us up the charts. You can learn more about go-to-ism and the techniques which make indispensable people stand out in their jobs and careers and lives in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, available wherever books are sold. If you're interested in bulk orders, please check the show notes for more information. And finally, you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking, 
by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com, by following me on Twitter at Bruce Tulgan, or find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at the links in the show notes. Until next time, stay strong and be indispensable at work.